Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2, the second chapter of Luke. Christmas season is upon us. Our kids are done with school, almost all of them, and they're very excited about that. Uh, We're getting ready for uh, the next couple weeks to spend time with family and to be at Christmas parties. We'll be doing the traditional Christmas traditions with singing Christmas music and opening presents, and certainly this is all a wonderful part of this time of year. And yet what is obvious for us as Christians is that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And it is that that we want to celebrate uh, the next couple Sundays as we meet together to remember the birth of our, our Savior. If you've been with us for the last few years, you may or may not remember that we're going through a 12-year series on the various accounts of the birth of Christ, and we're still not finished with that. So we have been through Matthew's account, we have been through John chapter 1, we have been through Philippians 2. And the last few years we have been in the early chapters of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, where they describe for us the many familiar events surrounding the birth of Christ. We've heard about the announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of Christ. We've heard about the announcement to Zacharias and Elizabeth that they would we uh, last year looked at the actual birth of Christ and the coming of the shepherds to celebrate that. This morning I want to take you to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35, an account of a man by the name of Simeon. What I find interesting about this is many of us are very familiar with the various parts of the Christmas story, the, the, the shepherds and the wise men and the announcements by the angels and the birth of Christ, and all of that happens around uh, this event, and yet there's a couple people that tend to be on the, the back burner, in the background, people that we normally don't hear about when we talk about the Christmas story. I remember growing up and hearing all the traditional parts of the Christmas story, and yet not hearing a lot about two people by the name of Simeon and Anna, two precious saints whom the Lord used to confirm the birth of Christ and to speak about the implications of it. I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Simeon today, and we want to look at how he fits into this Christmas story. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There are many responses in the Scriptures to the birth of Christ, most of them very familiar to us and fairly common. 
uh, in terms of their uniqueness uh, and, and the same in, t- in the sense of how they responded to the birth of Christ. We saw Mary's response back in Luke chapter 1, how she said, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She worshiped. We've seen the response of the angels in Luke chapter 2, how it says they came praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. We saw the response of the shepherds. Theirs also was an act of worship. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, that they went back glorifying and praising God. Same with the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. They arrived and fell to the ground and they worshiped Him. And even wicked King Herod said to those wise men, he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. He didn't have the right heart. He didn't really want to worship him, but he knew what the right response was, and it was a response of worship. And as we come to Simeon this morning, we find out that his response was essentially the same. It was one of worship. It was one of praise. It was one of adoration as he beheld the Christ and saw him for the first time. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He's really a unique man. He's a unique individual. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, all we know about Simeon are what's found in these verses. His name is very common. There were many Simeons in that day. Some have tried to associate him with the son of Hillel, the great high priest, and the father of Gamaliel, but we don't know for certain, certain who he was. All we know from Scripture is what is told for us in these verses in Luke chapter 2. I want to set the setting for you. And I want you to see what is taking place in the few verses prior to these events, to to see how God sovereignly orchestrated these events to bring together Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus and the man Simeon. So look up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, and let's just kind of set the stage for what's taking place here. It says in verse 21, And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Christ was born in Bethlehem, and by Jewish custom, uh, the tradition was that you were to circumcise your male baby eight days after that child was born. And that's exactly what we see Mary and Joseph doing here. They did the very same thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth did. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 59. This is exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth did with their child, John the Baptist. It says in verse 59 of chapter 1, it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This was Jewish tradition. This was Jewish custom. This was commanded of all Jewish families according to the law. Back in Leviticus chapter 12, it says, you shall circumcise the child on the eighth day. This was a look back to the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was a symbol of the fact that you needed cleansing, you needed forgiveness, that that the people of Israel needed to be forgiven of their sin, and that was the spiritual reality behind the practice of physical circumcision. And so Joseph and Mary are are just following the Jewish custom here. They are in Bethlehem still. Most likely they moved from the manger scene to a more uh, permanent, although temporary, residence in Bethlehem. And it says in verse 21 that they also gave him the name Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You remember that the angel Gabriel appeared to 
Joseph and told him, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him Jesus. And the same angel, Gabriel, came to Mary and said, you're to name the child Jesus. The, the name which itself means the Lord is salvation or God saves. And that is the perfect name for this child who wraps up God's perfect plan for salvation for all people. It's Christ, Jesus. God is a saving God, and God is the one who has put together this incredible account, and not only the account, but the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's Mary and Joseph. They're in Bethlehem still. They have circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They have given him the name Jesus. Now look at verse 22. It says, when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to, the, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This was a second ceremony associated with the birth of a Jewish child. The first one was circumcision for a male child. And in the case of the birth of a, a son, the woman was ceremonially unclean for 40 days. She gave birth to a daughter. Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 12 says she was ceremonially unclean for 80 days. And so there needed to be a purification process in order for her to re-enter the temple and re-enter the, the, the worship of, of the Lord. And so she waited the traditional 40 days. And now in verse 22, it says that they've made their way from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem. And there they're going to do exactly what the law commanded. They were going to offer the sacrifice for the purification associated with childbirth. So they made the six-mile trip from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem. And verse 23 says what they did. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. There was a purification ceremony that was to take place, but there was also a dedication ceremony that was to take place in dedicating the firstborn son to the Lord. You remember back in Exodus when God delivered his people out of the land of Egypt that the last plague that actually liberated them from Egypt was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God in his wisdom gave to Israel a practice that would remind them of that ultimate deliverance from Egypt, the, the, the dedication of the firstborn male to the Lord. This was required of all Jewish families in the case of a firstborn child. They were to dedicate that child to the Lord. If the child was in the family of the Levites, he was given to the priesthood for the rest of his life. If he was a non-Levite, the family was to pay a five-shekel donation or tax to the priesthood, to the temple, and that's described for us in Numbers chapter 3. And so Mary and Joseph are just following the traditional customs. They've, uh, they've circumcised their son they're going to Jerusalem to offer the purification sacrifice and to dedicate their son to the Lord, to the work of his kingdom. Look down at verse 24. It describes the sacrifice for us. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The law actually required back in Leviticus chapter 12 that you were to offer for this purification ceremony and for the dedication of a child, you were to offer a lamb and a pigeon or a dove. But if you were very poor, God allowed a poor family or a poor couple to donate instead to pigeons or to doves. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. That tells us something about Joseph and Mary. Christ was not born to the elite people in Jerusalem. 
He was not born with fanfare. He was not born to the religious establishment. He was not born in a, in a place where he could be shown off and, and highlighted and put on the pedestal. No, Christ came to a humble couple from a nondescript town in Nazareth, so poor that they could not even offer the standard sacrifice for the purification. I love that. God works through humble means. God doesn't use the elite. He doesn't use the noble. He doesn't take the best and leave the rest. No, God works through humble means to accomplish His purposes, and that's exactly what we see taking place in the case of the birth of Christ. As we come to verse 25, we meet Simeon, a witness to the birth of Christ. We'll meet Anna down in verses 36 to 38, but we want to meet this morning Simeon. And I want to tell you just a few things about him. I'll give you three or four four points. We're not going to get to all four of these this morning. We'll look at the last one probably next Sunday morning. But let me just walk through a few of these points with you. First, I want you to notice the, the character of Simeon. The first thing I want you to know about this man is his character. And I want you to understand what this man was like because Luke goes to great lengths to describe the character of this man. And he's described for us in verse 25 as a righteous man. Look at verse 25. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Tremendous description of this man. And why this is important is this, because in that day, Jerusalem and most of Israel was apostate. They were living in hypocrisy. And if you were living in first century Jerusalem or first century Israel, you would have been living amongst a people that were by and large apostate, hypocritical, engaged in a religion that was just external formalism and just kind of going through the motions without a heart for the Lord. There were very few true believers, true people who knew God at this time. The spiritual climate was dark. These were dark times in the history of Israel. They were led by a group of legalistic leaders who were corrupt. And in the midst of that, there's a bright spot. In the midst of this horrible and terrible and corrupt spiritual climate, there is this this bright spot, this, this bright light that shines in the midst of this whole entire situation. And he's the man, Simeon. What I love about that is that it teaches us that God always has his remnant. God always has his people, whether it's in the time of Christ or whether it's back in the time of Elijah when there were 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal. God always has his remnant. We need to hear that today. I don't know about you, but I can, I can look around and I can read the headlines and I can see what's going on in our country and I can watch the downfall of our nation and I can watch the moral slide that we're on and I can see what's taking place in the church and there are viewer, very few pulpits that are still faithfully and boldly proclaiming the word of God and we see what's happening in our country. There is a moral slide that we are fast upon and sometimes I get wondering, Lord, what, what's happening and where are all the faithful people? Well, God always has his remnant. He has it today, he has it then. And so here's Simeon. Look how he's described. Righteous, 
He's right with God. He has a right standing with God. He's in a right relationship with God because he's a man of faith. He's trusted God. He knows he can't earn God's favor. And so he's in a right relationship with God because he's been justified by the grace of God. So he's righteous. He's also devout, which is a word that means he, he has great care or attentiveness. He's careful in his walk with the Lord. He's careful in his relationship with the Lord. He's not flippant in his relationship or his walk with the Lord. He's not living an irresponsible life. He's living faithfully. He's living obediently. He's living in a way that honors the Lord. He's following his word. He's characterized by obedience and a love for the Lord and his law. He's a devout man and he's careful. He's circumspect in how he lives his life. He's righteous. He's devout. Look at the next quality. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. I love this. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. And that title or that phrase could actually be a title of the Messiah. He's looking for the Messiah. He's looking for the Christ. He's looking for the one who will bring consolation to Israel. If you look down just a few verses, down with Anna, verse 38, we find out that she was doing the same thing. It says in verse 38 that at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Same kind of thing. They're looking for hope. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for redemption for that to occur in their nation. Now, you need to think about what it was like to be a first century Jew. I just told you the climate. I just told you what it was like. I just told you that they're living in spiritually dark times. They're under the oppression of the Romans, and they're under the oppression of their their legalistic Jewish pharisaical leaders. They're under all of this weight, and they're under all of this oppression. And what are you hoping for? In that moment, you're hoping for some comfort. You're hoping for some consolation. You're hoping for someone to bring in all that the Old Testament promised, things like, comfort and peace and the king ruling and reigning on the earth, looking for that time when the Messiah will usher in his kingdom and there will be a personal salvation and there will be a national deliverance from Rome and from all the other oppression that they were experiencing as a nation. He's of a few select people who are still looking for and hoping for the time when God will restore his people to himself. I want you to listen to a few of these verses from Isaiah, because I guarantee Simeon knew Isaiah, and I'm certain that he knew the promises that were spoken in Isaiah that would come to God's people at a certain time. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that the warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received with the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He knew that. He knew that there was becoming a time when God would comfort his people. Isaiah 49, verse 13, shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. When would God have compassion on his afflicted? It's when the Messiah would come and he would establish his kingdom and establish his rule on earth. Simeon knew this. Isaiah 51, verse 3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness He will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a sound of melody. If you're living in Jerusalem at this time, that's not the case. 
There's no joy. There's oppression. There's no comfort. Isaiah 57, verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Isaiah 66, verse 10, be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her and all who mourn over her. There's day, a day is coming when Jerusalem and Israel will experience comfort, they'll experience joy, they'll experience gladness, they'll experience freedom from their oppression, and he is one of the people, one of the few are living in a day when they were looking forward to that and hoping for that arrival. They longed for this. They desperately anticipated the day when all of those Old Testament promises about the coming kingdom and all the blessings that came with that would be established in their nation and they would be delivered from their sin, they would be delivered from their enemies and there would be comfort, there would be a deliverer, there would be a king, there would be a savior, there would be a Messiah. If you're a godly Jew living at that time, that's what's gripping your heart and that's what you desperately want to see. It might be a little bit like us today who are looking forward to the second coming. Put yourself in those shoes. Maybe you can't anticipate what it was like to have been a a Jew living in first century looking forward to his first coming, but you know what it's like to anticipate a second coming, don't you? You better. You go to Maranatha Bible Church. (laughs) The second coming, the return of Christ, Lord, come quickly. You better think about this. Don't you find yourself longing for that? God, come back. God, send your, send your son again. God, restore this nation. Restore these people. Re- restore the church. Restore us to a place where we experience your blessing. We're free from our sin. We're walking with you. We're in obedience to you. We have your comfort with us. We have your presence with us. Send Christ to establish his kingdom where we will all look to him and we will, in a sense, travel to Jerusalem to see him and we will be present there and we will look forward to that day. Listen, if you're a Christian today and you don't long for that, something's missing in your heart. I want to see Christ. I want to be in his presence. I want to be free from this sin-sick world and this sin-sick body. Lord, come quickly. Maybe that was just a little bit of what Simeon is feeling. He's righteous. He's devout. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. Look at verse 25. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him, was upon him, imperfect tense, continuous action in the past. This is a remarkable statement, just a brief theology of the the Holy Spirit. You remember that the Holy Spirit operated differently then than He operates today. Today, we as believers have the privilege and the benefit of having the Holy Spirit live in us and dwell within us and take up His residence in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't the case for an Old Testament believer. Now, certainly, we know that the Holy Spirit still convicted people of sin in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit still regenerated hearts in the Old Testament because no one can come to faith in, in God in the Old Testament apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, just like he can't come to faith in Christ today without the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was working and operative, but in many cases in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit simply came upon an individual for a short time and then left. That's what happened with Saul. 
The Holy Spirit came on him. He lived in disobedience. The Holy Spirit came off him. David, same thing. He lived in obedience for a while. He disobeyed the Lord, and he even prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But here's Simeon, and it says the Holy Spirit was upon him, continuous action in the past. There's something unique about this man. It's righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel with the Holy Spirit upon him. Nowhere in this text does it indicate he was a priest. Nowhere in this text does it indicate that he was a man of rank or privilege. It doesn't indicate anywhere that he was well-known or famous. In fact, the opposite. Everything in this text indicates that this is just a common man in the temple, not known by lots of people, just a simple, godly man, a bright light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and one of the few godly people who was looking forward to the arrival of Messiah during that time. He's one of the people I want to meet in heaven. I want to talk to him because I want to know what it was like. I want to know what it was like to be that kind of man in that generation, and I want to know some of the details that unfold in the next part of this chapter. That's the character of Simeon. Secondly, I want you to notice the commitment to Simeon, the commitment to Simeon. It's found in verse 26. Hear what Luke says. It says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There's been a commitment that's been made to Simeon, and the commitment is this. You're not going to die until you actually see and behold the Messiah. Wow, what a promise. We're not told how he knows this. We're not told how the Spirit of God revealed this to him. We're not told exactly the, the details by which this occurred, but somehow, in some way, Simeon came to understand and know that he would not face death until his eyes beheld Christ. It's for this reason that many commentators think that Simeon was an old man. We don't know that for sure. There's nothing in the text to tell us how old he actually was. We, we don't know for certain that he was an older man, but probably that was the case, especially if you look down in verse 29 where he says, now, Lord, you're releasing your bond for servant to depart in peace. He was ready to, to depart that life. He was presumably an older man who had lived most of his life. He had lived a, a good life. He had arrived at the, the sunset years of his life, most likely. What we don't know, though, is how much time lapsed between the moment he was told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Christ before he dies and him actually beholding and seeing Christ. We don't know how much time there was. We don't know if there was weeks or days or months or years. We don't know how much time left or there was between those moments. He, he could have lived potentially in years waiting for the moment when he would see Christ. What a way to live. Think, think about what that would have been like. You go to bed at night, well, I didn't see Christ today, I didn't see the Messiah today, so I'm pretty much guaranteed to wake up in the morning. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. You know, you maybe could eat a little extra dessert because, hey, you know, I, I'm going to live for a while, why not? 
Imagine what that was like to live with the full realization that you would not face death until you had seen Christ. I'm often asked, when do you think Christ is coming back? It's a question that comes up often, classes and Q&A and conversation. When, when, when do you think Christ is... I mean, it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, it's got to be close, right? It's got to be soon. You've you got to think... Christ, my answer is this. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be today. Absolutely no idea. We have no concept as, as to how close we are to the return of Christ. I do know this. It's closer than it was yesterday. But think about this. Simeon knew, not the specific moment, but he had a certain time period which he could assign to the arrival of the Messiah. It would be before he dies. Incredible promise. There's a third thing I want you to notice. It's the comfort of Simeon. The character of Simeon, verse 25, the commitment to Simeon, verse 26. There's a third thing I want you to notice, and it is the comfort of Simeon. And from verses 27 to 32, we learn much about the comfort of Simeon. We learn what God did, first of all, to orchestrate the events, to bring them together, and then secondly, we get a window into his heart of what it was like to behold the newborn Christ for the first time. Look at verse 27. It says, and he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Here's what I love about this text. God is sovereignly orchestrating all the events to bring these two couples, or this, this couple and this man together. They don't know each other. They've never met Neither of them know this account is, is about to, this encounter is about to happen. And what you see happening here is the sovereign God orchestrating the events within the life of Mary and Joseph and within the life of Simeon to work it out, to bring it to a point where in fulfillment to God's promise to Simeon, they meet 40 days after the birth of Christ. So Mary and Joseph have traveled from Bethlehem, they've arrived in the temple area. God is sovereignly directing Simeon as well. Look at verse 27. It says, he came in the Spirit into the temple, and the word in the Spirit actually just means he's led by the Holy Spirit. God is the one leading him. God is the one who's directing him. God is the masterful chess player here who is putting all the right pieces in the right place in order for this event and this meeting to take place. And it says in verse 27 that he directed him by the Spirit into the temple. Now, let me explain that to you. Into the temple. He doesn't use the word naos here, which is the Holy of Holies, the, the building whereby the, the Holy of Holies was located. That was the very center of the, the, the temple complex, the place where the priest went into uh, and the holy priest only went in once a year. That, that's the, the naos part of the temple. The word he uses here is the word huron. And the word huron refers to the whole temple complex itself. The larger area, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the inner recesses uh, between the court of the women and the actual high place itself, 
And Luke is very careful here. He's a doctor. He knows uh, what kind of terminology he needs to use. And so instead of using the word naos to refer to the Holy of Holies, he refers to the whole complex itself, knowing that there was no way for Mary, a woman, to get into the inner parts of the court or the inner part of the temple. And so Luke tells us that it was the Spirit of God directing Simeon into the larger temple complex, most likely the courtyard of the women, the part where the women, the Jewish women, were able to uh, go to and the part they were able to um, frequent in their trip to the temple. So here they are. Joseph and Mary have made their journey. They're there to offer the sacrifice for purification. Simeon's in the temple, presumably what he's been doing for many, many times before. They don't know he's there. He doesn't know they're there until God in his providence directed them. Verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms. And at that point, I just want to go time out. Wait, there's a lot of the the gaps there that you've left out for us, Luke. There's a lot between those white spaces. What happened? How did Simeon know? And how, how did they actually meet? And what was it like when that conversation initially took place? And, and what did they say to each other? And how did they introduce each other? And how did Mary just willingly give her child to this old man? I want to know some details. But Luke leaves those out for us. God providentially worked somehow confirmed in Simeon's heart that this was the couple. This was the Messiah. Verse 28 says, He took him in his arms and he blessed God. Maybe you could use your sanctified imagination for just a moment what this moment was like for them. Joseph and Mary, for nine months, lived under the ridicule of family, friends. You're pregnant. You're pregnant and you're not married. And they made that long and arduous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and there was no place to stay. And so they found themselves in a a feeding area for animals of some sort. And it was there that she gave birth to a baby without her mom without a doctor, without a nurse, a 13-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy bringing a child into the world for the very first time, but not just any child, the Messiah himself. And since then, they've, they've had angels, supposedly, that, that spoke to the shepherds who the shepherds told them about, and the shepherds arrive and they, they, they speak about what those angels told them must have been a tremendous moment around the manger itself as, as they heard the account from the shepherds about what the angels said. So they've gotten some confirmation already from shepherds and from angels that this really is Christ. Now here's 40 days later, they show up in the temple and here's another confirmation, an old man whom they've never met. He's not a priest. And suddenly he begins to speak some words about their son being a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. 
Put yourself in the shoes of this young couple as they start to hear these words. What about Simeon? Look at it from his perspective. Here, here's a man who's in the temple and he's, he's minding his own business perhaps. So he knows at some point he's going to see the Messiah, but he doesn't know for sure it's today. And suddenly something happens. God, through his spirit, confirms in his heart, this is Christ. That one. And I wonder if the first thought through his mind was, a baby? The Messiah of the world is a baby? To this young couple? They're just teenagers. I wonder what things he thought. I wonder the flood of emotions that came through his heart. As for the very first time, he sets eyes on his Savior, a baby. must have been a tremendous moment for both Mary and Joseph and Simeon himself. We get a little window into what Simeon thought of this as he begins to speak. And he begins to speak in verse 29. Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your own word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. He begins to speak. And the first thing he says, having seen Christ for the very first time, he says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. You've shown me what I wanted to see. This is the highlight of my life. This is, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've wanted to see. And now you can let me go, God. He says, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Bondservant, doulos, slave. Send this slave home. I like what one version says. It says, now, master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you have promised. I've seen what I've wanted to see. The watching is over. The waiting is over. The Messiah is here. My heart is settled. I've seen what I've wanted to. I can go home now to be with you. Why? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. And I love where Simeon puts the emphasis. He puts it on God. He doesn't say, I've seen my salvation. He says, I've seen your salvation. And Simeon right there truly understands the only reason he can be saved or anyone else can be saved is because God is the one who's done this. God is the one who has accomplished this. God's salvation is bound up not in a plan, not in a program. It's bound up in a person. Salvation wrapped up in a baby. your salvation. God has done this. 
God has initiated this. God is the one who has orchestrated this. God is the one who has sent Christ. God is the one who is the author of this entire redemptive accomplishment. God is the one who has brought this to fruition. Christ is God's plan of salvation. And Simeon understands it. He understands that there's nothing he's done, nothing he's accomplished. He understands where the emphasis in salvation needs to lie, and it needs to lie with God as the one who has initiated this entire work. Look at verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. God's done this. God has accomplished this. And if it weren't for the initiatory work of God in redemption, Christ would have not come and we would not be sitting here today. Do you understand that? You are saved because God took the first step. God accomplished it. God did it. God God is the one who initiated this entire redemptive plan. It's He who has prepared Christ in the presence for all peoples. And then look, notice how He describes Him. Verses 32, verse 32. He says, The light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And right there, are the twin truths of who Christ is. Simeon highlights two glorious realities of the Messiah here. He is on the one hand a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and on the other hand, he is the glory of your people Israel. He holds them both up. On the first hand, on the one hand, Christ is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He, he speaks here of the fact that Christ, having come through Israel, is the light of God to all the nations. And this was something that was spoken in the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, speaking to Israel. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to my people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Israel as a nation was to be that. They failed. God sent Christ, and He is the light of the revelation of the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones to Israel? I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christ is the light promised in the Old Testament to be revealed through the nation of Israel to all the nations. By the way, that's you and me. The light of God to the revelation of the Gentiles. That's us. And the only reason you're sitting here today worshiping the Lord, celebrating the arrival of His Son, is because God has shown in your hearts through the work of Jesus Christ. If that hadn't happened, we'd still be in darkness, still clamoring our way around in a sin-sick world, looking for some light, looking for some hope, looking for some direction, looking for some joy. Are you not glad God took the initiative and sent to you the light of the revelation of the Gentiles? He's also the glory of Israel. 
He's the glory of Israel. And Israel had a lot of glory. Abraham, law of Moses, the covenants, the temple, the promises, the prophets, the patriarchs. They're his chosen people. They, they had a lot to glory in, but Simeon makes it very clear where the true glory of Israel lies. Not just in Abraham, not just in Moses, not just in the temple, not just in the law, not just in the prophets, not just in the promises. Despite all those wonderful privileges, the true glory of Israel lies in Christ. The only one who would redeem them as a nation, the only one who would bring them back, the only one who would establish his kingdom for them, the only one through whom all of this glory and all of this wonder and all of this redemption would have come and be accomplished. Get a window into Simeon's heart. We can see what he thought. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Think about that. Holding your six-week-old and having a man come up and speak to you in this way. Amazing. Tremendous. And all Joseph and Mary can do is marvel at the work of God and choosing them to be the ones through whom Messiah would come. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. A baby. The light to the Gentiles and the glory of the Jewish people. There's something more interesting about this, and we'll close with this. Simeon never probably got to see the rest of the work of Christ. He saw him as a six-week-old baby, but he never saw him teach, most likely. He never, never saw him perform the miracles. He never heard about a sacrifice, a substitutionary death, a burial, a resurrection, an ascension. Simeon most likely never lived long enough to see and behold all of the wonders of Christ. He simply saw the baby. Here's the kicker. We know. We live 2,000 years later, and we see and we know what Simeon probably never knew. And so I wonder this morning, do you have the same joy? Does it leak out of you like it leaked out of Simeon? Is there a wonder and a joy and an astonishment in, in your heart as you consider Christ, as you consider His work, as you consider His life, His death, His resurrection? That's why we preach Him boldly. That's why we share Him passionately. That's why we are unequivocal in our stand of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope outside Christ. And so, this is the message that we take to our lost friends, to our lost families. And this is the message that brings us joy at Christmas. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you that we know a Savior. The same Savior that Simeon actually got to meet. And yet we know more, much more about him than he ever did. We thank you that we can look back and see in in reality that Christ is a light to the Gentiles and he is the glory of Israel. And God, that you have prepared him for us. Your salvation, prepared in your presence for all the peoples. And so Lord, we come humbly this morning as a church family, simply to say thank you. Simply to say, Lord, if it hadn't been the light of Christ shining in this dark world, we would still be lost, dead, blind, and under your wrath and condemnation forever. So all praise and honor and glory goes to you because, Lord, you've been merciful to us and you have sent us the consolation of Israel, our Messiah. And we pray that we will make much of him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.